again to you. It's good to have you here. And we are starting a new uh, nine-week series this weekend on the book of Jonah. And as we often do the first week of a series, we, uh, oh, it's always important to kind of give you some context uh, to let you know what this is all about and kind of the history of it. And so tonight may be a little more academic than it usually is, but we'll uh, hopefully try to make it uh, interesting for you. And in fact, I want to I start by sharing a story with you, and I've, I've shared parts of the story before over the years, and I share it because it's kind of become a part of, of who I am. Um, when I was uh, 17, I'd been a Christian for almost two years at that point. Uh, I was going to a church, and a good friend of mine was 19, and he was, uh, so he was a couple years old, but he was in college. Uh, he was the junior high ministry intern at the church that I was at, and um, just a, a guy that I admired tremendously and looked up to, loved the Lord. Um, he was uh, a musician, and I was a musician, and that was back in the days where uh, just it only took a couple of you who had guitars and uh, could write some songs and had hair, and you could just be a Christian band in, in L.A., and so uh, we did that. He and I and another guy who was a couple years older than him, uh, Chuck, and so the three of us would go around, you know, we'd, we'd write music, and we'd go to churches, and uh, we would play songs. I, actually, now we'd like play songs in the worship service, and maybe we'd teach, and I don't I cringe now. I'm not sure what came out of my mouth when I was 17 years old, but uh, I'm sure people were gracious. And anyway, so one week at church, we're having a, an evangelistic uh, revival crusade. Anybody old enough to remember having those in church? Like, right? Evangelistic crusade. So basically, an evangelist would come to the church, and we would meet every night for that entire week. Every night of the week, and we would come, and he would preach and preach and preach, and yell and yell and scream at everyone, and then have an altar call, and everybody would walk the aisle just to get him to shut up. And so he'd walk up and we'd do that every night. And I think we we're about halfway through it. We were probably on, I think it was maybe a Wednesday night. And uh, afterwards, uh, Steve, uh, my 19-year-old good friend of mine, um, he, was, he was driving home from church and he was getting off the freeway. And as he was coming down on the off-ramp, it was a green light to go through the intersection, and so he, he proceeded to go through. Uh, there was a, another 19-year-old on the road that night who had been drinking heavily, uh, driving a big pickup truck, and kind of came the other way, and just went right through the red light, hit Steve's car. Steve was driving a Pinto wagon. Um, it didn't blow up, but it did apparently, according to um, uh, people who saw it, lift up off the ground four feet and uh, wrap itself around a light pole. Um, and interesting, uh, two years ago, uh, Chuck, who was the other guy in the band, ended up writing a book uh, about Steve and about his, his short life. And so I was able to uh, lift a few photos from that that I didn't have. And I know this is a little, you'll probably see this. This is from the newspaper, but this was one side of Steve's vehicle. And you can see that the way that he was hit, it just perfectly hit him right up against that pole. This is the other side of that vehicle. And Steve was killed instantly. Um, something that was, you know, just to wake up the next morning and find that one of your best friends just overnight was just gone. And that was the first time that I'd really experienced anything like that. And uh, Steve had, and he was the youngest son of, of Bruce and Charlotte, who were just really neat, very humble servants of the Lord. And uh, so at the end of that week, we ended up having uh, the funeral service, and then I remember sitting down with uh, Bruce and Charlotte and a couple of family members uh, the day after that, and they were sharing how they had been praying about what had happened to their son. And of course, they're, they're just grieving tremendously. 
And they said that they felt like God had, had led them to uh, want to go and talk, have a conversation with the young man who was driving the vehicle who, who killed them, who killed Steve. And they were going to uh, share, and so they did. They, they sat down with him, and they said, we just want you to know uh, about our son, and we want you to know what his life was about, and we want you to know that he loved the Lord, and they shared the gospel with him. And at the end of that meeting, he gave his life to the Lord Jesus Christ, and they said, you know what? Uh, we believe that in Christ we should forgive you. And so they just forgave him and they dropped the charges and they let it go. And they allowed this, this young man just to kind of go on his way. And it, it, oddly enough, it made a lot of family members very angry because they were just saying he's manipulating you and he's, he'll say anything to get off. And as it turns out, he ended up going to Bible college and seminary and became a pastor and went into ministry and had a really fruitful ministry. Uh, but... I was trying to imagine at the time how um, this mom and dad could do that. How they could come to a place where they could, they could forgive someone who recklessly took the life of their, of their youngest son. And I was thinking, imagine, if you would, um, that someone has recklessly taken something from you of great value. Imagine it was, it's the life of one of your children. Imagine it's, it's your spouse because of the reckless actions of someone else. Or imagine that you lose your job because of, of someone else, or your health, or your home. Or imagine you lose your retirement or your savings or some cherished possession. And then imagine that as you're going through the pain of that loss, of, of that suffering, that God speaks to you. Imagine that he speaks to you somehow, and he says to you, I want you to go to that, that person, that person that has hurt you, that person who was reckless, that person who maybe is just a terrible person, I want you to go to that person and I want you to tell them about the gospel and I want you to offer them forgiveness and offer them my grace and my mercy and I want you to give them a free pass. I just want you to just forgive them and just let them go. And they'll just get to go on with their life and you'll have to go on with your life just bearing the burden of that loss. And my question is, would, would you do that? And what if people would despise you for doing that? Would you do that? And what if family members would say, I think you're foolish for doing that. Would you still do that? Could you do that? And I ask you that question because as we come to the book of Jonah, it's one of the things that we'll see, one of the things that we'll be wrestling with. And I want to kind of get us started this evening by talking about some of the basics, some of the details uh, of the book. And I've got some of this stuff in your notes this evening, but... Jonah is found in the Old Testament. If you're not real familiar with the Bible, with the Old Testament, and if you like science and periodic charts, this is the perfect combination of a periodic chart and the Old Testament. So we've kind of laid this out for you. And this is, I know you can't really see it well, but this is a really cool chart when you kind of zero in and see all of it. But we can break down the Old Testament um, in a several sections. We have the Pentateuch. That's the first five books of the Bible, or the books of Moses, or the Law of Moses, we call it. Uh, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers. Deuteronomy, you may know those, call that the law sometimes. And then we have 12 books that uh, recount uh, the history of the kingdom of Israel and after the split Israel and Judah. We've got a bunch of uh, books about that. And then we have the wisdom literature books or the poetic books, sometimes we call them. There's five books there. There's Job. Uh, actually, I'm working on a series right now. I think we'll do Job a little later in the year. Uh, we've spent time in the Psalms. We've spent time in Proverbs. We, uh, I think about a year ago, went through the entire book of Ecclesiastes verse by verse. We'll never do the Song of Solomon here at Gateway. Uh, and then we have uh, our major prophets and our minor prophets. 
And people ask, you know, what's the difference between the major and minor prophets? And basically, it's just the length of the books, right? Guys who just couldn't help themselves and wrote on and on and on and on. They're the majors. And, and if you had brevity and you just kind of got it down short, and then the punishment you got was you're sent down to the minor leagues. And so really, the, the, the difference here is just the, uh, it's, it's the size, it's the length of the book. And right about five into there is the book of Jonah, which is where we're going to be for the next Nine weeks, just four chapters and just 48 verses in the entire book. It's pretty short. Uh, it's, we believe, biographical. In fact, it's probably autobiographical, but written in the third person uh, by Jonah. His name means dove or, or peace, probably about an account of a story that happened probably about 760 years before Christ walked this earth. If you're using a Bible in the chairs there, it's on page 654, just to help you there. But Jonah is a real story about a real person. In fact, Jesus refers to the story of Jonah. Now, the Bible gives us just almost nothing about Jonah's personal life. Plenty about his ministry, but really not much about him. There's a story in 2 Kings chapter 14 that was probably written before uh, his, his trip to Nineveh. And uh, it tells us a little bit, it's talking about the, the kingdoms, and it says, in the 15th year of Amaziah, the son of Joash, the king of Judah. So you may know that at, at this point, the kingdom of Israel has been divided. There's a north, and in the north and the south, there's Israel in the north, and there's Judah. And each has their own king and their own place of worship. So in the 15th year of, of Amaziah, the son of Joash, king of Judah, that's the southern kingdom, Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, that's in the other kingdom, began to reign in Samaria. And he reigned for 41 years. And he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. This is true of every king of the northern uh, kingdom in Israel. And he did not depart from all the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, which he made Israel to sin. And he restored the border of Israel from Lebohamath as far as the Sea of Arabah. So in other words, what it's saying is that um, in terms of the landmass, the country was growing. And in terms of the economy, things were going pretty good. But spiritually, they had an evil king. And things were not going good in that sense. According to the word of the Lord, the God of Israel, which he spoke, here we go, by his servant Jonah, the son of Amittai, the prophet, who is from Gath Hefer. So we're told just a couple of things about Jonah. He was referred to as a servant of the Lord. This is a technical term used in the Old Testament. It's talking about somebody who's been specifically set apart from a group of people, kind of pulled out for another purpose. And the purpose that he had was that he was a prophet. He belonged to a select privileged group of people who were divinely chosen by God and, and God would speak to them about things that he was going to do among the nations and their job was to uh, take that message and to deliver it to whoever God addressed it to, to a king or to leaders or to a, a country and to encourage people to listen to God and encourage people to obey God. But the times of Jonah were difficult times. It was a time of spiritual and political crisis for Israel, because we're told that kings did what was evil, and that evil had tra uh, tragic consequences for those kings and for the countries and the citizens. But God was also at work during these days. In fact, Jonah's immediate predecessors were Elijah and Elisha, pretty heavy hitters. And in fact, we're told that these men set up a, a school of prophets and, and they would mentor the next generation of prophets and Jonah may have been one of those. In fact, it's kind of interesting. Uh, so 
I got a lot of criticism this morning for going short, for not preaching very long. So I, so I have one story I can just kind of inter- insert in here. It's kind of interesting. If you were to go to a Jewish synagogue and they were to teach about Jonah, um, Jewish tradition has an interesting story about Jonah. It's outside of the Bible, but they, if you remember the story of Elijah, and he was on uh, the mountain, and he was battling against the prophets of Baal. Remember that? And he has success. And then Jezebel, the queen, says, you know, I'm going to get you. And so he runs for his life. And kind of the short version is he goes and he hides in this ravine. And, and birds bring him food and take care of him for a while. And then eventually God says, I want you to pack up and go to Zarephath. And he went there, and he found a widow. Remember the story? There was a widow and she had just a little bit of flour and oil left and she was going to make her last meal for her and her household and she said, and then we'll probably starve to death. And remember Elijah's like, well, if you let me come, stay at your house and you'll have plenty of food, it'll be great. And so they did that and then a little while later she had a son and her son died and, and uh, Elijah raised that young man from the dead and Jewish tradition says that that young man, in fact, was Jonah. Now, we don't find that in the Bible. It's kind of an interesting story, but he probably knew Elijah. Elisha may have been part of that school. And as we come to Jonah, there's a lot of different, as you read commentaries and maybe you've studied Jonah over the years, and you know, there's a lot of different ways that we come at Jonah, a lot of different themes. Uh, we're going to probably, as time goes on, touch on, on all of these, if not most of these. Racism and nationalism is something that we'll see in this book. Jonah had confused patriotism with spirituality. And, and sometimes, in the earlier services I said it, and I could see people who were like, I don't understand the difference. We'll talk a little bit about that, because sometimes, even as Christians today, we confuse the idea of patriotism with what it means to be a Christian, and they are not the same thing. They are different things. And, and Jonah really stumbles over this idea really hard. We'll talk about that. Jonah talks about God's call to missions, that we are to be people who care for those who are beyond our borders, and who speak different languages, who are part of different religions, that God wants us to care and, and share the gospel with them as well. In Jonah, we see kind of the struggle to obey and trust God when he asks us to do things that seem hard and difficult and don't make any sense to us, as we'll see with Jonah. And Jonah, we kind of wrestle with the idea of what it means to love your neighbor as yourself without prejudice. This is a problem for Jonah. He was willing to love certain people, but there were certain people apparently that he was absolutely not willing to love. And so he had this prejudice component there. And I think, again, even as, as Christians today, where we live, I, I think that's a struggle for many of us, to love others without prejudice. We'll talk a lot about that and what that means. Uh, What does it mean for God to be both merciful and just? And this is something that that Jonah's going to struggle with. Jonah seems to think they're mutually exclusive, that God could be merciful or God could be just. But how could God be both? How could God punish sin and at the same time have mercy on people? And in fact, we'll, we'll discover as we dig into it that you all already know the answer to that, but we'll get to that. It has something to do with that thing right over there uh, with the cross. Uh, we're also going to consider um, the idea of evangelism and the sovereignty of God. Sometimes I, I hear people who will say today, well, you know, God only saves people if we go out and share the gospel and they hear it. And if we don't go out and share the gospel, people won't get saved. And other people say God is sovereign and God's going to save who he's going to save. No matter what we do, we can stay home and watch TV. It doesn't really matter. And we're going to find out that these two things actually work together. 
We're going to talk about the character of God. So, so what we're going to discover is that Jonah wants a God who simply smites bad people and blesses good people. Like that's just, you can just boil it down. He really believes that, that God should smite the people that he doesn't like, like the Ninevites, and that God should bless the people that he likes, like the Israelites. And when the real God shows up and does not follow Jonah's agenda, Jonah basically throws a temper tantrum at the end of the book. We'll talk a little bit about that as well. And maybe the big theme that we can talk about is that salvation belongs to the Lord. Chapter 2, verse 9 says exactly that. And it's been noted that where Jonah sits in the Bible, that this idea of salvation belongs to the Lord radiates in both directions, all the way back to Genesis and all the way forward to Revelation. Salvation belongs to the Lord. So there's a lot of themes, and we're going, to, uh, we're going to dive into a lot of these over the next nine weeks, but we want to notice that the way that this book begins, because this is a, a, a prophetic book, and it, they always start with God speaking, which is what happens here. In Jonah chapter 1, verse 1, it tells us this. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise and go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. So the word of the Lord comes to Jonah. In fact, that phrase appears over a hundred times in the prophets. It's how many of these books begin. Jonah, the book of Jonah begins with God speaking to Jonah. And a couple things to note about this, that it says the word came. So it forced itself upon Jonah. Jonah didn't ask for it. Jonah didn't pray for it. Jonah wasn't waiting for it. It came to Jonah when God was ready. It came with clarity. He tells him what to do. Arise and go to Nineveh. Very clear. I want you to get up off the couch. I want you to hoof it and go here. And here's exactly where I want you to go. And it comes with responsibility. He says, I want you to call out against Nineveh. But this mission that God is calling Jonah to is unprecedented. God is calling Jonah to do something he has never called another prophet to do. It was a call for Jonah to leave Israel, to go beyond the borders of Israel, and to go to a Gentile city. God has never asked a prophet to do this before. Prophets have only been sent to God's people or to the leadership of Israel or Judah. Some prophets pronounced oracles against pagan countries, but none of them were called to go to that country, to go to that city. So this is unprecedented, and it's also actually quite shocking when we think about where Jonah was being sent. He's being sent to Nineveh, a great city, it says, and it was the capital of Assyria. Now, if you know anything about Assyria during this time, you'll know that Assyria was one of the cruelest and the most violent of empires of ancient times, despised and hated by its enemies. For instance, after capturing enemy cities, We know, for instance, that several other practices included uh, cutting off the legs, both legs of, of the enemy combatants, and one of the arms so that they could shake the hand of that person as they were dying. They would come in and Uh, decapitate the heads off of people and put them on poles and force loved ones to walk through the town with those heads on poles. And while this sounds absolutely unbelievable to us today, if you've watched the news in the last few years, you know that in the Middle East, while they didn't put them on poles, they stuck them, for instance, on fences when certain terrorist group went in and, and, and took cities. 
So this is something that still to a certain degree happens to this day. Adolescents were burned alive and those who survived war had to endure the cruelest forms of slavery. Assyria is Israel's hated enemy. In fact, during this time in history, Israel is paying a tribute to Assyria. Basically what a tribute was, was Assyria would send an emissary and they would say, you know, so uh, we're bigger than you and we're stronger than you and we're going to kill you. We're going to wipe you off the face of the earth unless you, you pay us money and lots of money and pay it to us on a regular basis. And if you do, then, you know, we won't pick on you in the play in, at the playground. You know, we'll kind of let you be. And so Israel is, is spending their money, is, is draining their coffers to be able to pay this. And every now and then, Assyria would still send in uh, some people and do a little damage and take some lives and burn down a couple of villages just to keep Israel remembering what was on the line here. As many say, Assyria was basically a terrorist nation at this point. This nation, this terrorist nation, is the object of God's missionary outreach. And as we'll discover, Jonah kind of has this inkling. We won't really read this until chapter 4, but Jonah has this idea that if he goes to Nineveh, this hated city, and, and, and Jonah probably knows, uh, probably ha- knows people where he lives who have been killed by the Assyrians, uh, t- carried away by the Assyrians into, into captivity, and he knows, he has an inkling that if he goes to Nineveh and he preaches to them that against all odds they might repent, and if they repent, God may have mercy on them. If his mission was successful, God would be helping the enemies of his people, of his nation. And for Jonah, he, he just, his patriotic self cannot swallow this. He, he can't do it. And so Jonah does what you know he does. He runs. He puts some shoes on and he tries to run. In verse 3 it says this, But Jonah rose to flee to, Char- to Tarshish. From the presence of the Lord he went down to Joppa, And he found a ship going to Tarshish. And so he paid the fare and he went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. So if I can just kind of show you here, if this will work, what we're talking about. So this is, uh, do a little Google map here, okay? And I'll see if I can get this to work. Oh, look at that. Isn't that super cool? All right, so anyways, so here's where we're starting at point A. We're in Israel, and God's calling him to go to point B. That's Nineveh. That right there is 300 miles. Instead, he goes down to get on a boat and go this way. (laughs) You notice, instead of going over land, he's going to go over sea. And instead of going this direction, he's going to go this direction. Instead of going 300 miles, he's trying to go 2,500 miles in the opposite direction. In other words, he wants to get as far away from this situation as possible. Now, why? Why does he do it? Why does he run from God? Well, as we'll discover in the weeks to come, there's a lot of reasons, but one is because Nineveh was a great city, according to this word. By great, we mean that it was a powerhouse. It was a cultural and military and economic powerhouse. Jonah is a nobody from a small, inconsequential um, 
you know, part of the world, uh, a nation of Israel from an inferior country, inferior people, if he went to Nineveh, this, this large city, probably at best he would be ignored completely and at worst they would take notice of him and torture him and kill him like they did to the rest of their enemies. But if they did respond, if they did respond to the message, Jonah's got two problems. He's got the Ninevites on the one side that he hates, that he cannot stand, who are now receiving the mercy of God and he's going to become a traitor among his own people who see the Ninevites as their enemies. He'll now be the traitor prophet. He won't be able to stay in Nineveh and he won't be able to go home. He would be sacrificing his reputation as a spiritual person, as a part of Israel for the godless Ninevites. People who didn't deserve mercy. You can see where he's stuck. He doesn't want them to have mercy. He doesn't want to go to them, but God's calling him to go to them. And he knows that if he goes and they respond, they won't really like him and his own people won't really like him. And he'll lose his reputation. And it makes me wonder, how often have you and I refused to do something for God because of what other people might think about us? Where have we refused to go? What have we refused to say? Who have we refused to love because of what other people might think of us so that other people will like us? See, Jonah had a big problem with the job that he was given, but as we'll see, he has a bigger problem with the one who gave it to him. Jonah is going to reason that because he couldn't see any good reason for God's command, that there couldn't possibly be a good reason. And this is something as a pastor that I see again and again and again over the years. And I think we've all had this experience where maybe we read God's word and he speaks to us or we hear a sermon and he speaks to us or we're just praying and somehow he speaks to us and maybe he says, I want you to go forgive someone and we can't see any good reason for going and forgiving that person because of what they've done for us. No good reason. We don't want to do that. Or maybe God says, I want you to love someone or maybe love an enemy and we don't want to love that enemy. Or maybe God says, I want you to be generous in some way. And we don't want to be generous in that way. Or maybe God says, I want you to get out of some sin, walk away from something. Maybe it's a sinful relationship. And here's a conversation I have again and again, kind of on a repeating basis, where somebody will say, well, I don't know why I would get out of that sinful relationship because I kind of like what I'm getting out of it. And I wouldn't be getting it if I wasn't in that relationship. But on the other hand, I know God will forgive me, right? He's already forgiven all my sins, and so I'll just stay in that relationship. Or maybe God convicts us about something, about maybe our internet use or how we spend our money, or maybe it's our vocabulary. Maybe it's complaining and it's gossip and it's slander. Or maybe, you know, God's trying to get you to stop justifying your completely inappropriate entertainment choices or, or maybe God wants to get you to go tell someone about the gospel and it just feels uncomfortable and you just don't want to do it. And the bottom line is that we think if, right, if we obey God, how many times have we thought this? If I do what God wants me to do, I won't be happy. I'll be miserable. It'll be hard. I'll be uncomfortable. It won't make me happy. And in those times when God calls us to do something and we don't want to do it because we don't think it will make us happy, we have a decision to make. We have to decide, does God know what's best for me or do I know what's best for me? And unfortunately, our default mode is typically to think that we know better than God about what will make us happy in the long run. That's basically exactly what Adam and Eve did in the garden with the first sin. In Genesis 2.16, it little piece of the story there. It says, And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, 
You may surely eat of every tree in the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. So God puts Adam and Eve in the garden. He says, you can eat anything you want except for this one tree, just this one tree. And notice what happens in chapter three. I mean, you already know, you've read the story, but it says, so when the woman saw the tree was good for food, right? I mean, it looks good. And that it was a delight to the eyes. She liked looking at it. It looks pretty nice. And that the tree was to be desired to make one wise. She took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. So she looks at it, and she says, you know, it looks good. And, and, and I like the way it looks. It's, it's a delight, and, and she desires it. And Adam and Eve decided that they couldn't think of any good reason for God's command, so there, there must not be one. They didn't trust God to have their best interests in mind, and so they ate. Timothy Keller, in his book on Jonah, says this. If you want to understand your own behavior, you must understand that all sin against God is grounded in a refusal to believe that God is more dedicated to our good and more aware of what that is than we are. Let that sink in a little bit. Let me read that again, just part of that. It's a refusal to believe that God is more dedicated to our good and more aware of what that is than we are. Adam and Eve didn't say, let's be evil, let's ruin our lives and everyone else's too. Rather, they thought, we just want to be happy. But God's commands don't look like they will give us the things that we need to thrive. And therefore, because of our deep mistrust of God's goodness and his word, we're going to do everything we can to get out from under his hand. And this is really the most fundamental temptation there has ever been in the world and the original sin. And it's been said that our problem in obeying God isn't that we don't understand what he is saying, but that we do. When the word of the Lord came to Jonah, he didn't need to consult a commentary. He didn't need to go get advice from his pastor. He knew exactly what God wanted him to do. Jonah's difficulty was not intellectual. And most of the time, that's not our problem either. We know, we comprehend what God is asking us to do. But for Jonah, it was moral. It was moral. He had his own desires. He had his own plans. He had his own ambitions. He had his own hates and his own prejudices. And Jonah had his own concepts of how things ought to be and how he could best serve God. And when God said, I want you to go there, Jonah said, that's not going to work for me, God. Basically, you don't know what you're talking about. And so Jonah runs He goes down, he gets on a ship, and he heads in the other direction. But God pursues. And really for the rest of our time together in this series, we'll be talking about how God pursues him and what this produces. But again, let me read verse 3. It says this, But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. So he goes down to Joppa, this port, and he finds a ship going to Tarshish, and he pays the fare, and he went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. And so Jonah at this point stumbles. Despite all his past training, his education, his privilege, hearing from the voice of the Lord, he stumbles. And the point is this, that no past privilege or past obedience or past ministry of fruitfulness to the Lord can ever substitute present obedience to God. Jonah rose to flee from God's presence, which Jonah had to know. He, He couldn't actually escape from God. That would be impossible because God is omnipresent, right? That means God is everywhere. There's nowhere you can go where God 
isn't. Jonah is a theologian. Jonah knows this. He was not fleeing from God's omnipresence. I think he's, he's fleeing from the place of, of God's influence, a place of, of prayer, a place of service, a place of obedience and wisdom in God's agenda and usefulness and blessing. He's just trying to get as far away as he can from this situation so that hopefully this influence of God isn't all around him. He just reasons if he can't escape God, maybe he can ignore God. Have you ever tried to do that? Like, I can't get away from God, but maybe I can ignore him and he'll just leave me alone. In verse four, it says this, but the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea and there was a mighty tempest on the sea so that the ship threatened to break up. I love those first three words there, but the Lord. Have you noticed in scripture there's a lot of stories about he did this, she did this, he sinned in this way, she did this, but the Lord but the Lord showed up, but the Lord got involved. And I love the fact that God shows up in that way. Many f- people find it intimidating, but it's exactly what we need. And Jonah's about to find out that God loves him too much to be ignored. And God loves you too much to be ignored. I, I was thinking about this idea this week and imagining, um, so my wife and I, we have uh, three kids, and I remember when they were young, and we would go to the coast a lot, and so maybe many of you as parents have had the same experience, and I just imagine a situation, you have your toddler, who you love, who's your pride and joy with you, and you go to the Oregon coast, and it's one of those rare days when the sun is shining, it's not freezing, and so you're going to take a walk along the coast, and so imagine you're walking with your toddler, and you're holding their hand, and, and the, the water is right here, and the sand is over here, and you're walking right along the edge of the water, right, because toddlers like to get their feet in the water, so imagine you're walking along with your toddler, and you're walking, and you want to keep them safe, so you've got them close to you, and then they kind of do what toddlers do, they kind of pull a little bit, because they want to get their foot, their feet in the water and so they're kind of walking and you you let them do that but then they kind of pull out a little bit more so you pull them in but they do what they do right they just kind of keep pulling and so you you say okay I'm going to let you go of your hand but I want you to stay close to me and you say well of course I will absolutely and right and so you're kind of walking and you notice they kind of drift a little bit towards the water and maybe their their feet are in the water and they're kind of laughing and splashing it's all kind of fun and and then maybe a little bit up to the ankle and so you say you know what you need to stay close to me don't don't be wandering out there and they kind of okay and they come close and then when they think you're not looking, they wander out, maybe a little deeper, a little ankle, maybe it's up to here, right? As a parent, and, and you know that they, they can't see what you can see. You can look out on the surf and you can see the waves that are coming and they cannot see it. Too short. And you notice that there's some big waves that are coming in and the waves will be just big enough if they get to your toddler, to your loved one, it's going to pick them up and take them out. And so you say to them, hey, honey, you need to come in now. You need to get close to me. And imagine that your toddler ignores you, right? Where they do that selective listening thing. Like suddenly they can't. Like if you said, hey, I have candy, they'd be right there. But you're like, hey, I need you to come in. And they act like they can't hear you. And they just continue to kind of wander out. And you see the waves coming in. And you say, come to me. And they don't come to you. They're ignoring you. Here's my question. Will you be ignored as a parent? No, you will not be ignored, will you? If you have to, you'll reach over and grab them by the, you ever done that? Grab them by the arm, just kind of lift them up out of the water and bring them over, right? Why will you not ignore them? Because you love them too much. You value them too much to ignore them. They will not be ignored. Here's the point. God loves you too much to be ignored. I mean, God could have got 
there's probably a hundred other prophets waiting for the call to follow God. I've always found it interesting that God didn't just say, well, Jonah, go ahead if that's what you want, right? And I'll just bring up another guy. No, he goes after Jonah. Why? Because he loves Jonah too much. This is what Jonah needs. He loves him too much to be ignored. Maybe like Jonah, God has called you to do something that you don't really want to do. Maybe God's called you to forgive someone who's sinned against you and they're not even sorry about what they've done and you don't want to forgive them. Maybe God's called you to befriend someone that you don't want to befriend. Maybe it'll just be hard. Maybe it'll take too much time. Maybe they're a whiner, a complainer, whatever it is, and you just don't want to do it. Maybe God's calling you to be generous in some way that you don't want to be generous. Maybe God's called you to go somewhere you don't want to go or share Christ with someone you don't want to share with or maybe get involved in some ministry and you don't want to give up your time. Maybe God's called you to change vocations or, or give up some habit that you need to forsake or get out of some situation that isn't good for you. Maybe God's calling you to love someone from another culture that you consider to be godless and you don't want to do that or befriend someone from the other political party or the other side of town or the other side of the tracks, right? Or maybe somebody from another religion or somebody from another race, somebody with a different skin color than you. Maybe God wants you to show compassion to someone that you don't want to show compassion to. Maybe it's someone who's homeless. Maybe it's an immigrant and you just want them to go home. You just want them to go back. See, your choice in those, in those moments is you can trust God and you can obey or you can run away. I mean, you can try. <laughs> you can try to run away. You can try to get away from God. But know this, that your response to God's will always has consequences. It always does. You can choose to obey God and move toward him and be blessed or you can try to get away from God, in which case he will come after you and like Jonah, you will be faced with a storm. Because God loves you too much to just let you wander away. Jesus put it this way. He says, if you want to revolutionize your life, he says this, blessed are those who hear the word of God and what? And obey it. So here's my question as we close. Is there some area of your life right now where you're running instead of obeying? Where you're running, where you're making excuses? Maybe you're playing the I'll do it later game. You ever do that? Well, I'm not disobeying. I'm just not going to do it now. I can't do it now. I'll, God, I'll follow you. I'll do what you want when I get out of school or, you know, when I, when I get married or when we have kids or when we don't have kids at home anymore or when I retire or next week or tomorrow or whatever it is. But folks, delayed obedience is really just today's disobedience. Where are you running from God? when you should be obeying? And would you be willing to say to God, I'm going to stop running, I'm going to start, stop delaying, and I'm going to say yes to you. Or you can just wait and run from him and come back next week. You'll want to come back next week to hear what happens when you do that. So with that in mind, let me pray for us. We're going to worship for a few minutes and we'll let you go.